Hey comrades, so this will be part two of chapter one of The Wretched of the Earth. So I left off on, if you're following along in the PDF, uh, page 65, so I'm going to start with this first new paragraph here. In the early days of colonization, a single column could occupy immense stretches of country, the Congo, Nigeria, the Ivory Coast, and so on. Today, however, the colonized country's national struggle crops up in a completely new international situation. Capitalism in its early days saw in the colonies a source of raw materials which, once turned into manufactured goods, could be distributed on the European market. After a, a phase of accumulation of capital, capitalism has today come to modify its conception of the profit-earning capacity of a commercial enterprise. The colonies have become a market. The colonial population is a customer who is ready to buy goods. Consequently, if the garrison has to be perpetually reinforced, if buying and selling slackens off, that is to say, if manufactured and finished goods can no longer be exported, there is clear proof that the solution of military force must be set aside. A blind domination founded on slavery is not, economically speaking, worthwhile for the bourgeoisie of the mother country. The monopolistic group within this bourgeoisie does not support a government whose policy is solely that of the sword. What the factory owners and finance magnates of the mother country expect from their government is not that it should decimate the colonial peoples, but that it should safeguard the help of economic conventions their own quote-unquote legitimate interests. Thus there exists a sort of detached complicity between capitalism and the violent forces which blaze up in colonial territory. What is more, the native is not alone against the oppressor, for indeed there is also the political and diplomatic support of progressive countries and peoples. But above all, there is competition. That pitiless war which financial groups wage upon each other, a Berlin conference was able to tear Africa into shreds and divide her up between three or four imperial flags. At the moment, the, most, the important thing is not whether such and such a region in Africa is under French or Belgian sovereignty, but rather that the economic zones are respected. Today, wars of repression are no longer waged against rebel sultans. Everything is more elegant, less bloodthirsty. The liquidation of the Castro regime will be quite peaceful. They do all they can to strangle Guinea, and, the, and they eliminate Mossadegh. Thus, the nationalist leader who is frightened of violence is wrong if he imagines that colonialism is going to, quote-unquote, massacre all of us. The military will, of course, go on playing with tin soldiers, which date from the time of the conquest, but higher finance will soon bring the truth home to them. This is why reasonable nationalist political parties are asked to set out their claims as clearly as possible, and to seek it with their colonialist opposite numbers calmly and without passion for a solution which will take the interests of both parties into consideration. We see that if this nationalist reformist tendency, which often takes a form of a kind of caricature of trade unionism decides to take action. It will only do so in a highly peaceful fashion, through stoppages of work in the few industries which have been set up in the towns, mass demonstrations to cheer the leaders, and the boycotting of buses or of imported commodities.
All these forms of action serve at one and the same time to bring pressure to bear on the forces of colonialism and to allow the people to work off their energy. This practice of therapy by hibernation, this sleep cure used on the people may sometimes be successful. Thus, out of the conference around the Green Bay's table comes the political selectiveness which enables Monsieur Mba, President of the Republic of Gabon, to state in all seriousness on his arrival in Paris for an official visit, quote, Gabon is independent, but between Gabon and France, nothing has changed. Everything goes on as before, end quote. In fact, the only change is that Monsieur Mba is President of the Gabonese Republic and that he is received by the President of the French Republic. The colonial bourgeoisie has is helped in its work of calming down the natives by the inevitable religion. All those saints who have turned the other cheek, who have forgiven trespasses against them, and who have been spat on and insulted without shrinking, are studied and held up as examples. On the other hand, the elite of the colonial countries, those slaves set free, when at head of the movement inevitably end up by producing an ersatz conflict, they use their brother's slavery to shame the slave drivers or provide an ideological policy of quaint humanitarianism for their oppressors' financial competitors. The truth is that they never make any real appeal to the aforesaid slaves. They never mobilize them in concrete terms. On the contrary, at the decisive moment, that is to say, from their point of view, the moment of indecision, they brandish the danger of a quote-unquote mass mobilization as the crucial weapon which could bring about, as if by magic, the quote-unquote end of colonial regime. Obviously, there are to be found at the core of the political parties and among their leaders certain revolutionaries who deliberately turn their backs upon the farce of national independence. But very quickly their questionings, their energy, and their anger obstruct the party machine, and these elements are gradually isolated and then quite simply brushed aside. At this moment, as if there existed a dialectic concomitance, the colonialist police will fall upon them. With no security in the towns, avoided by the militants of the former party and rejected by its leaders, these undesirable firebrands will be stranded in county districts. Then it is that they will realize bewilderedly that the peasant masses catch on to what they have to say immediately and without delay, ask them the question to which they have not yet prepared an answer. When do we start? This meeting of revolutionaries coming from the towns and country dwellers will be dealt with later on. For the moment, we must go back to the political parties in order to show the nature of their actions, which is all the same progressive. In their speeches, the political leaders give a name to the nation. In this way, the natives' demands are given shape. There is, however, no definite subject matter and no political or social program. There is a vague outline or skeleton, which is nevertheless national in form, what we describe as minimum requirements. The politicians who make speeches and who write in the nationalist newspapers make the people dream dreams. They avoid the actual overthrowing of the state, but in fact they introduce into their readers or hearers consciousness the terrible ferment of subversion. The national or tribal language is often used. Here, once again, dreams are encouraged, and the imagination is let loose outside of the bounds of colonial order. And sometimes these politicians speak 
of, quote, we Negroes, we Arabs, end quote. And these terms, which are so profoundly ambivalent, take on, during the colonial epoch, a sacramental signification. The nationalist politicians are playing with fire. As an African leader recently warned a group of young intellectuals, quote, Think well before you speak to the masses, for they flare up quickly, end quote. This is one of the terrible tricks that destiny plays in the colonies. When a political leader calls a mass meeting, we may say that there is blood in the air. Yet the same leader very often is above all anxious to, quote-unquote, make a show of force, so that in fact he, is, he need not use it. But the agitation which ensues, the coming and going, the listening to speeches, seeing the people assembled in one place with the police all around, the military demonstrations, arrests, and the deportation of the leaders, all this hubbub makes the people think that the moment has come for them to take action. In these times of instability, the political parties multiply their appeal to the left for calm, while on their right they scan the horizon trying to make out the liberal intentions of colonialism. In the same way, the people make use of certain episodes in the life of the community in order to hold themselves ready and to keep alive their revolutionary zeal. For example, the gangster who holds up the police set on to track down for a few days on end, or who dies in single combat after having killed four or five policemen, or who commits suicide in order not to give away his accomplices, these types light the way for the people, form the blueprints for action, and become heroes. Obviously, it's a waste of breath to say that such and such a hero is a thief, a scoundrel, or a reprobate. If the act for which he is prosecuted by the colonial authorities is an act exclusively directed against a colonialist person or colonialist property, the demarcation line is definite and manifest. The process of identification is automatic. We must also notice in this ripening process the role played by the history of the resistance at the time of the conquest. The great figures of the colonized people are always those who led the national resistance to invasion. Behanzin, Sundieta, Semori, Abdelkader all spring again to life with peculiar intensity in the period which comes directly before action. This is the proof that the people are getting ready to begin to go forward again, to put an end to the static period begun by colonization, and to make history. The uprising of the new nation and the breaking down of colonial structures are the result of one of two causes, either a violent struggle of the people in their own right, or an action on part of surrounding colonized peoples, which acts as a break on the colonial regime in question. A colonized people is not alone. In spite of all that colonialism can do, its frontiers remain open to new ideas and echoes from the world outside. It discovers that violence is in the atmosphere, that here and there bursts out, and here and there sweeps away the colonial regime. That same violence which fulfills for the native a role that is not simply informatory, but also operative. The great victory of the Vietnamese people at Dien Bien Phu is no longer, strictly speaking, a Vietnamese victory. Since July 1954, the question of which the colonized people have asked themselves has been, quote, what must be done to bring another 
Dianbin Pu. How can we manage it? End quote. Not a single colonized individual could ever again doubt the possibility of a Dianbin Pu. Uh, the only problem was how best to use the forces at their disposal, how to organize them, and when to bring them into action. This encompassing violence does not work upon the colonized people only. It modifies the attitude of the colonists who become aware of manifold Dien Ben Pus. This is why a veritable panic takes hold of the colonist government in turn. Their purpose is to capture the vanguard, to turn the mo movement of liberation towards the right, and to disarm the people. Quick, quick, let's decolonize. Decolonize the Congo before it turns into another Algeria. Vote the constitutional framework for all Africa. Create the French communauté. Renovate that same communauté, but for God's sake, let's decolonize, quick. And they decolonize at such a rate that they impose independence on Ufet Boigny to the strategy of Dien Bien Pu, defined by the colonized people, the capitalist replies by the strategy of encirclement, based on the respect of the sovereignty of states. But let us return to that atmosphere of violence, that violence which is just under the skin. We have seen that in the process toward maturity, many leads are attached to, to control it and to show it the way out. Yet in spite of the metamorphosis which the colonial regime imposes, upon it in the way of tribal or regional quarrels, that violence makes its way forward, and the native identifies his enemy and recognizes all his misfortunes, throwing all of the exurbated might of his hate and anger into this new channel. But how do we pass from the atmosphere of violence to violence in action? What makes the lid blow off? There is, first of all, the fact that this development does not leave the settler's blissful existence intact. The settler who, quote-unquote, understands the native is made aware by several straws in the wind showing that something is afoot. Quote-unquote, good natives become scarce. Silence falls when the oppressor approaches. Sometimes looks are black and attitudes are and remarks openly aggressive. The nationalist parties are astir. They hold a great many meetings. The police are increased and reinforcements of soldiers are brought in. The settlers, above all, the farmers isolated on their land, are the first to become alarmed. They call for energetic measures. The authorities do, in fact, take some spectacular measures. They arrest one or two leaders. They organize military parades and maneuvers and air force displays. But the demonstrations and warlike exercises, the smell of gunpowder which now fills the atmosphere, these things do not make the people draw back. Those bayonets and cannonades only serve to reinforce their aggressiveness. The atmosphere becomes dramatic, and everyone wishes to show that he is ready for anything. And it is in these circumstances that the guns go off by themselves. For nerves are jangled, fear reigns, and everyone is trigger-happy. A single commonplace incident is enough to start the machine-gunning. Satif in Algeria and the central quarries in Morocco, Moragama in Madagascar. The repressions far from calling a halt to the forward rush of national consciousness urge it on. Mass slaughter in the colonies at a certain stage of the embryotic development of consciousness increases that consciousness. 
for the hatacombs are an indication that between oppressors and oppressed, everything can be solved by force. It must be remarked here that the political parties have not called for armed insurrection and have made no preparations for such an insurrection. All these repressive measures, all those actions which are a result of fear, are not within the leader's intentions. They are overtaken by events. At this moment, then, colonialism may decide to arrest the nationalist leaders. But today the governments of colonized countries know very well that this is extremely dangerous to deprive the masses of their leaders, for then the people, unbridled, fling themselves into jacqueries, mutinies, and quote-unquote brutish murders. The masses give free rein to their quote-unquote bloodthirsty instincts and force colonialism to free their leaders to whom falls the difficult task of bringing them back to order. The colonized people, who have spontaneously brought their violence to the colonial task of destroying the colonial system, will very soon find themselves with the barren insert slogan, quote-unquote, release X or Y. Then colonialism will release these men and hold discussions with them. The time for dancing in the streets has come. In certain circumstances, the party political machine uh, may remain intact, but as a result of the colonial repression and of the spontaneous reaction of the people, the parties find themselves outdistanced by the militants. The violence of the masses is vigorously pitted against the military forces of the occupying power, and the situation deteriorates and comes to a head. Those leaders who are free remain, therefore, on the touchline. They have suddenly become useless with their bureaucracy and their reasonable demands, yet we see them, far removed from events, attempting the crowning imposture, that of, quote, speaking in the name of the silenced nation, end quote. As a general rule, colonial wel colonialism welcomes this godsend with open arms, transforms these, quote unquote, blind mouths into spokesmen and in two minutes endows them with independence, on condition that they restore order. So we see that all parties are aware of such violence, and that the question is not always to reply to it by greater violence, but rather to see how to relax the tension. What is the real nature of this violence? We have seen that it is the institution of the colonial colonized masses that their liberation must and can only be achieved by force. By what spiritual aberration do these men, without technique, starving and enfeebled, confronted with the military and economic might of the occupation, come to believe that violence alone will free them? How can they hope to triumph? It is because violence, and this is the disgraceful thing, may constitute insofar as it forms part of its system, the slogan of a political party. The leaders may call on the people to enter upon an armed struggle. This problematical question has to be thought over. When militarist Germany decides to settle its frontier disputes by force, we are not in the least surprised. But when the people of Angola, for example, decide to take up arms, when the Algerian people reject all means which are not violent, these are proofs that something has happened or is happening at this very moment. Colonized races, those slaves of modern times, are impatient. They know that this apparent folly alone can put them out of reach of the colonial impression. A new type of relation is established in the world. 
The underdeveloped peoples try to break their chains, and the extraordinary thing is that they succeed. It could be argued that in these days of Sputniks, it is ridiculous to die of hunger, but for the colonized masses, the argument is more down-to-earth. The truth is that there is no colonial power today which is capable of adopting the only form of contest which has a chance of succeeding, namely the prolonged establishment of large forces of occupation. As far as their internal situation is concerned, the colonist countries find themselves faced with contradictions in the form of working-class demands which necessitate the use of their police forces. As well, in the present international situation, these countries need their troops to protect their regimes. Finally, there is well-known myth of liberating movements directed from Moscow. In the regime's panic-stricken reasoning, this signifies, quote, if that goes on, there is a risk that the communists will turn the troubles into account and infiltrate into these parts, end quote. In the native's eagerness, the fact that he openly brandishes the threat of violence proves that he is conscious of the unusual character of the contemporary situation and that he means to profit by it. But, still on the level of immediate experience, the native, who has seen the modern world perpetuate into the furthermost corners of the bush, is most acutely aware of all the things he does not possess. The masses, by a sort of if we may say so, childlike process of reasoning convince themselves that they have been robbed of all these things. That is why in certain underdeveloped countries, the masses forge ahead very quickly and realize two or three years after independence that they have been frustrated that, quote, it wasn't worthwhile, end quote, fighting, and that nothing could really change. In 1789, after the bourgeois revolution, the smallest French peasants benefited substantially from the upheaval. But it is commonplace to observe and to say that the majority of cases, for 95% of the population of underdeveloped countries, independence brings no immediate change. The enlightened observer takes note of the existence of a kind of masked discontent, like the smoking ashes of a burnt-down house after the fire has been put out, which still threaten to burst into flame again. So they say that the natives want to go too quickly. Now, let us never forget that only a very short time ago they complained of their slowness, their laziness, and their fatalism. Already we see that violence used in specific ways at the moment of the struggle for freedom does not magically disappear. After the ceremony of trooping the national colors. It is all the less reason for disappearing since the reconstruction of the nation continues with the framework of the cutthroat competition between capitalism and socialism. This competition gives an almost universal dimension to even the most localized demands. Every meeting held, every act of repression committed, reverberates in the international arena. The murders of Sharpeville took public opinion for months. In the newspapers, over the wavelengths, and in private conversations, Sharpeville has become a symbol. It was through Sharpeville that men and women first became acquainted with the problem of apartheid in South Africa. Moreover, we cannot believe that demagogy alone is the explanation for the sudden interest in the big power show that in the petty affairs of underdeveloped regions. Each jackery, 
each act of sedation in the third world makes up a part of a picture framed by the Cold War. Two men are beaten up in Salisbury, and at once the whole of a block goes into action, talks about those two men, and uses the beating up incident to bring more up the particular problem of Rhodesia, linking it moreover with the whole African question and with the whole question of colonized people. The other block, however, is equally concerned in measuring by the magnitude of the campaign the local weaknesses of its system. Thus, the colonized peoples realize that neither clan remains outside local incidents. They no longer limit themselves to regional horizons, for they have caught on to the fact that they live in an atmosphere of international stress. When every three months or so we hear that the 6th or 7th fleet is moving towards such and such a coast, when Khrushchev threatens to come to Castro's aid with rockets, when Kennedy decides upon some desperate solution for the Laos question, the colonized person or the newly independent native has the impression that whether he wills it or not, he is being carried away in a kind of frantic cavalcade. In fact, he is marching in it already. Let us take, for example, the case of the governments of recently liberated countries. The men at the head of affairs spend two-thirds of their time in watching the approaches and trying to anticipate the dangers which threaten them, and the remaining one-third of their time in working for their country. At the same time, they search for allies. Obedient to the same dialectic, the national parties of opposition leave the paths of parliamentary behavior. They also look for allies to support them in their ruthless ventures into sedation. The atmosphere of violence, after having colored all the colonial phase, continues to dominate national life, for as we have already said, the third world is not cut off from the rest. Quite the contrary, it is at the middle of the whirlpool. This is why the statesmen of underdeveloped countries keep up indefinitely the tone of aggressiveness and exasperation in their public speeches, which in the normal way ought to have disappeared. Herein, also, may be found the reasons for the lack of politeness so often spoken of in connection with the newly established rulers. But what is less visible is the extreme courtesy of the same rulers in their contacts with their brothers or their comrades. Discourtesy is first and foremost a matter to be used in dealings with the others, with the former colonists who come to observe and to investigate. The quote-unquote ex-native too often gets the impression that these reports are already written. The photos which illustrate the article are simply a proof that one knows what one is talking about and that one has visited the country. The report intends to verify the evidence. Everything's going badly out there since we left. Frequently, reporters complain of being badly received, of being forced to work under bad conditions, and of being fenced round by indifference or hostility. All this is quite normal. The nationalist leaders know that international opinion is formed solely by the Western press. Now, when a journalist from the West asks us questions, it is seldom in order to help us. In the Algerian War, for example, even the most liberal of the French reporters never ceased to use ambiguous terms in describing our struggle. When we reproached them for this, they replied in all good faith that they were being objective. For the native, objectivity is always directed against him. We may in the same way come to an 
understand the new tone which swamped international diplomacy at the United Nations General Assembly in September 1960. The representatives of the colonial countries were aggressive and violent and carried things to extremes, but the colonial countries did not find that they exaggerated. The radicalism of the African spokesman brought the abscess to a head and showed up the inadmissible nature of the veto and of the dialogue between the great powers, and above all, the tiny role reserved for the third world. Diplomacy, as inaugurated by the newly independent peoples, is no longer an affair of nuance, of implications, and of hypnotic passes. For the nation's spokesmen are responsible at one and the same time for safeguarding the unity of the nation, the progress of the masses towards a state of well-being, and the right of all peoples to bread and liberty. Thus, it is a diplomacy which never stops moving, a diplomacy which leaps ahead in strange contrast to the motionless, petrified world of colonization. And when Mr. Khrushchev brandishes his shoe at the United Nations or thumps the table with it, there is not a single executive nor any representative of an underdeveloped country who laughs. For what Mr. Khrushchev shows the colonized countries which are looking on is that he, the Mujik, who moreover is the possessor of space rockets, treats these miserable capitalists in the way that they deserve. In the same way, Castro sitting in military uniform in the United Nations organization does not scandalize the underdeveloped countries. What Castro demonstrates is the consciousness he has of the continuing existence of the rule of violence. The astonishing thing is that he did not come into the UNO with a machine gun, but if he had, would anyone have minded? All the jacqueries and desperate deeds, all those bands armed with cutlass or axes, find their nationality and in the implacable struggle which opposes socialism and capitalism. In 1945, the 45,000 dead at Setif could pass unnoticed. In 1947, the 90,000 dead in Madagascar could be the subject of a simple paragraph in the papers. In 1952, the 200,000 victims of the repression in Kenya could meet with relative indifference. This was because the international contradictions were not sufficiently distinct. Already the Korean and Indo-Chinese wars had begun a new phase. But it is above all Budapest and Suez which constitute the decisive moments of this confrontation. Strengthened by the unconditional support of the socialist countries, the colonized people fling themselves with whatever arms they have against the impregnable citadel of colonialism. If this citadel is invulnerable to knives and naked fists, it is no longer so when we decide to take into account the context of the Cold War. This fresh juncture, the Americans take their role of patron of the international capitalism very seriously. Early on, they advise the European countries to decolonize in a friendly fashion. Later on, they do not hesitate to proclaim first the respect for and then the support of the principle of, quote, Africa for Africans, end quote. The United States is not afraid today of stating officially that they are the defenders of the right of all peoples to self-determination. Mr. Menon Williams' last journey is only the illustration of the consciousness which the Americans have that the Third World ought not to be sacrificed. 
From then on, we understand why the violence of the native is only hopeless if we compare it to the abstract, to the military machine of the oppressor. On the other hand, if we situate that violence in the dynamics of the international situation, we see at once that it constitutes a terrible menace for the oppressor. Persistent jacqueries and Mau Mau disturbance unbalance the colony's economic life, but do not endanger the mother country. What is more important in the eyes of imperialism is the opportunity for socialist propaganda to infiltrate among the masses and to contaminate them. This is already a serious danger in the Cold War, but what would happen to that colony in case of real war, riddled as it is by murderous guerrillas? Thus, capitalism realizes that its military strategy has everything to lose by the outbreak of nationalist wars. Again, within the framework of peaceful coexistence, all colonies are destined to disappear, and in the long run, neutralism is destined to be respected by capitalism. What must at all costs be avoided in this strategic insecurity? The breakthrough of enemy doctrine into the masses and the deep-rooted hatred of millions of men. The colonized peoples are very well aware of these imperatives, which rule international political life. For this reason, even those who thunder denunciations of violence take their decisions and act in terms of this universal violence. Today, peaceful coexistence between the two blocs provokes and feeds violence in the colonial countries. Tomorrow, perhaps, we shall see the shifting of that violence after the complete liberation of the colonial territories. Perhaps we will see the question of minorities cropping up. Already certain minority groups do not hesitate to preach violent methods for resolving their problems, and it is not by chance, so the, so the story runs that in consequence, Negro extremists in the United States organize a militia and arm themselves. It is not by chance either that in the so-called free world there exist committees for the defense of Jewish minorities in the USSR, nor an accident if General de Gaulle in one of his m operations sheds a tear over the millions of Muslims oppressed by communist dictatorship. Both capitalism and imperialism are convinced that the struggle against racism and the movement towards national freedom are purely and simply directed by remote control, fomented from the outside, so they decide to use the very officious tactic. The ra Radio Free Europe station voice of the committee for the aid of overruled minorities. They practice anti-colonialism as did the French colonels in Algeria when they carried on subverse warfare with the SAS or psychological services. They, quote, use the people against the people, end quote. We have seen with what results. This atmosphere of violence and menaces, these rockets brandished by both sides, do not frighten nor deflect the colonized people. We have seen that all their recent history has prepared them to understand and grasp the situation. Between the violence of the colonies and that peaceful violence that the world is steeped in, there is a kind of complicit agreement, a sort of homogeneity. The colonized peoples are well adapted to this atmosphere. For once, they are up to date. Sometimes people wonder that the native, rather than give his wife a dress, buys instead a transitor radio. There is no reason to be astonished. The natives are convinced that their fate is in the balance. Here and now, they live in the atmosphere of doomsday, and they consider nothing ought to let be let past unnoticed. 
That is why they understand very well Fuma and Fumi, Lumumba and Tsombe, Ahido and Mome, Kenyatta, and the men who are pushed forward regularly to replace him. They understand all these figures very well, for they can unmask the forces working behind them. The native and the underdeveloped man are today political animals in the most universal sense of the word. It is true to say that the independence has brought moral compensation to colonized people and has established their dignity, but they have not yet had time to elaborate a society or build up and affirm values. The warming, light-giving center where man and citizen develop and enrich their experience in wider and still wider fields does not yet exist. Set in a kind of irresolution, such men persuade themselves fairly easily that everything is going to be decided elsewhere for everybody at the same time as for the political leaders when faced with this situation they first hesitate and then choose neutralism there is plenty to be said on the subject of neutralism some equated with some sort of tainted mercantilism which consists of taking what it can get from both sides in fact, neutralism, a state of affairs created by the Cold War, if it allows underdeveloped countries to receive economic help from both sides, does not allow either party to aid underdeveloped areas to the extent that is necessary. Those literally astronomical sums of money which are invested in military research, those engineers who are transformed into technicians of nuclear war, could in the space of 15 years raise the standard of living in underdeveloped countries by 60%. So we see that the true interests of underdeveloped countries do not lie in the protraction nor the accentuation of this Cold War, but it so happens that no one asks their advice. Therefore, when they can, they cut loose from it, but they can really remain outside it? At this very moment, France is trying out her atomic bombs in Africa. Apart from the passing of motions, the holding of meetings, and the shattering of diplomatic relations, we cannot say that the peoples in Africa have had much influence in this particular sector on France's attitude. Neutralism produces the citizen of the third world, a state of mind which is expressed in everyday life by a fearlessness and an ancestral pride strangely resembling defiance. The flagrant refusal to compromise and the tough will that sets itself against getting tied up are reminiscent of the behavior of proud, poverty-stricken adolescents who are always ready to risk their necks in order to have the last word. All this leaves Western observers dumbfounded, for to tell the truth there is a glaring divergence between what these men claim to be and what they have behind them. These countries, without tramways, without troops, and without money, have no justification for the bravado that they display in broad daylight. Undoubtedly, they are impostors. The third world often gives them the impression that it rejoices in sensation, and that it must have its weekly dose of crises. These men at the head of empty countries who talk too loud are most irritating. You'd like to shut them up, but on the contrary, they are in great demand." They are given bouquets. They are invited to dinner. In fact, we quarrel over who shall have them. But this is neutralism. They are 98% illiterate, but they are the subject of huge body of literature. They travel a great deal. The governing classes and students of underdeveloped countries are gold mines for airline companies. African and Asian officials may say in the same month, 
follow a course on socialist planning in Moscow, and one on the advantages of the liberal economy in London or at the Columbia University. African trade union leaders leap ahead at great rate in their own field. Hardly have they been appointed to posts in managerial organizations than they decide to form themselves into autonomous bodies. They haven't the requisite 50 years' experience of practical trade unionism in the framework of an industrial country, but they already know that non-political trade unionism doesn't make sense. They haven't come to grips with the bourgeois machine, nor developed their consciousness in the class struggle, but perhaps this isn't necessary. Perhaps. We shall see that this will, to sum everything up, which caricatures itself often in facile internationalism, is one of the most fundamental characteristics of underdeveloped countries. Let us return to considering the single combat between native and settler. What we have seen that it takes the form of an armed and open struggle. There is no lack of historical examples, Indochina, Indonesia, and of course North, North Africa. But what we must not lose sight of is that this struggle could have broken out anywhere, in Guinea, as well as Somaliland, and moreover today, it could break out in every place where colonialism means to stay on. In Angola, for example, the existence of an armed struggle shows that the people are decided to trust to violent methods only. He whom they have never stopped saying that the only language he understands is that of force, decides to give utterance by force. In fact, as always, the settler has shown him the way he should take if he is to become free. The argument the native chooses has been furnished by the settler, and by an ironic turning of the tables, it is the native who now affirms that the colonist understands nothing but force. The colonial regime owes its legitimacy to force, and at no time tries to hide this aspect of things. Every statue, whether of Fadherbe, or Lote, or Bigode, or of Sergeant Bladin, all these conquistadors perched on the colonial soil do not cease from proclaiming one and the same thing, quote, we are here by the force of bayonets, end quote. This sentence is easily completed. But during the phase of insurrection, each settler reasons on a basis of simple arithmetic. This logic does not surprise the other settlers, but it is important to point out that it does not surprise the natives either. To, get, to begin with, the affirmation of the principle, it's us or them, does not constitute a paradox, since colonialism, as we have seen, is a fact of the organization of the Mechian world, a world divided up into compartments. And when in laying down precise methods, the settler asks each member of the oppressing minority to shoot down 30 or 100 or 200 natives. He sees that nobody shows any indignation, and that the whole problem is to decide whether it can be done at all at once or by stages. This chain of reasoning, which presumes very arithmetically the disappearance of the colonized people, does not leave the native overcome with moral indignation. He has always known that his duel with the settler would take place in the arena. The native loses no time with the lamentations, and he hardly ever seeks justice in the colonial framework. The fact is that if the settler's logic leaves the native unshaken, it is because the latter has practically stated the problem of his liberation in identical terms. 
quote, we must form ourselves into groups of 200 or 500, and each group must deal with the settler, end quote. It is in this matter of thinking that each of the protagonists begins the struggle. For the native, this violent represents the absolute line of action. The militant is also a man who works. The questions that the organization asks the militant bear the mark of this way of looking at things. Quote, where have you worked? With whom? What have you accomplished? End quote. The group requires that each individual perform an irrevocable action. In Algeria, for example, where almost all the men who called on the people to join in the national struggle were condemned to death or searched for by the French police, confidence was proportional to the hopelessness of each case. You could be sure of a new recruit when he could no longer go back into the colonial system. This mechanism, it seems, had existed in Kenya among the Mau Mau, who required that each member of the group should strike a blow at the victim. Each one was thus personally responsible for the death of that victim. To work means to work for the death of the settler. This assumed responsibility for the violence allows both strayed and outlawed members of the group to come back again and to find their place once more to become integrated. Violence is thus seen as comparable to a royal pardon. The colonized man finds his freedom in and through violence. This rule of conduct enlightens the agent because it indicates to him the means and the end. The poetry of Césaire to take in the precise aspect of violence a prophetic significance. We may recall one of the most decisive pages of his tragedy where the rebel explains his conduct. The rebel. My name, an offense. My Christian name, humiliation. My status, a rebel. My age, the stone age. The mother. My race, the human race. My religion, brotherhood. The rebel. My race, that of the fallen. My religion, but it's not you. That will show it to me with your disarmament. Tis I, myself, with my rebellion and my poor fists clenched and my woolly head. I remember one November day, it was hardly six months ago, the master came into the cabin in a cloud of smoke like an April moon. He was flexing his short muscular arms. He was a very good master, and he was rubbing his little dimpled face with his fat fingers. His blue eyes were smiling, and he couldn't get the honeyed words out of his mouth quick enough. Tea, kid will be a decent fellow, he said looking at me, and he said other pleasant things too. The master that you had to start very early, that twenty years ago was not too much to make a good Christian and a good slave, a steady devoted boy, a good commander's chang-gang, captain, sharp-eaved and strong-armed. And all that man saw of my son's cradle was that it was the cradle of a chain-gang captain. We crept in, knife in hand. The mother. Alas, you'll die for it. The rebel. Killed. I killed him with my own hands. Yes, t'was a fruitful death, a copious death. It was night. We crept among the sugar canes. The knives sang to the stars, but we did not heed the stars. The sugar canes scarred our faces with streams of green blades. The mother. I had dreamed of a son to close his mother's eyes, the rebel, but I chose to open my son's eyes upon another son, the mother. Oh, my son, son of evil, an unlucky death, the rebel, mother of living and splendid death, the mother, because he had hated too much, 
the rebel, because he had loved too much. The mother, spare me, I am choking in your bonds, I bleed from your wounds, the rebel. And the world does not spare me. There is not anywhere in the world a poor creature who's been lynched or tortured, in whom I am not murdered and humiliated. The mother, God of heaven, deliver him. The rebel, my heart, thou wilt not deliver me from all that I remember. It was an evening in November, and suddenly shouts lit up the silence. We had attacked, we the slaves, we, the dung underfoot, we the animals, with patient hooves. We were running like madmen, shots rang out, we were striking, blood and sweat cooled and refreshed us. We were striking where the shouts came from, and the shouts became more strident, and a great clamor rose from the east. It was the outhouses burning, and the flames flickered sweetly on our cheeks. Then was the assault made on the master's house. They were firing from the windows. We broke in the doors. The master's room was wide open. The master's room was brilliantly lighted, and the master was there, very calm. And our people stopped dead. It was the master. I went in. It's you, he said, very calm. It was I. Even I. And I told him so. The good slave. The faithful slave. The slave of slaves. And suddenly his eyes were like two cockroaches, frightened in the rainy season. I struck. And the blood spurted. That is the only baptism that I remember today. It is understandable that in this atmosphere, daily life becomes quite simply impossible. You can no longer be a fella, a pimp, or an alcoholic as before. The violence of the colonial regime and the counter-violence of the native balance each other and respond to each other in an extraordinary reciprocal homogeneity. This reign of violence will be the more terrible in proportion to the size of the implementation from the mother country. The development of violence among the colonized people will be proportionate to the violence exercised by the threatened colonial regime. In the first phase of this insurrectional period, the home governments are the slaves of the settler, and these settlers seek to intimidate the natives and their home governments at one and the same time. They use the same methods against both of them. The assassination of the mayor of Evian and its methods and motivation is identifiable with the assassination of Ali Boumangel. For the settlers, the alternative is not between Algerie, Algerien, and Algerie Francais, but between an independent Algeria and a colonial Algeria, and anything else is mere talk or attempt at treason. The settlers' logic is implacable, and one is only staggered by the counter-logic visible in the behavior of the native insofar as one has not clearly understood beforehand the mechanisms of the settler's ideas. From the moment that the native has chosen the methods of counter-violence, police reprisals automatically call forth reprisals on the side of the nationalists. However, the results are not equivalent, for machine-gunning from airplanes and bombardments from the fleet go far beyond. In horror and magnitude, any answer the natives can make, this recurring terror demystifies once and for all the most estranged members of the colonized race. They find out on the spot that the piles of speeches on the equality of human beings do not hide the commonplace fact that the seven Frenchmen killed or wounded at the called de Sacabody kindles the indignation of all civilized consciousness, whereas the sack of Douars of Gergor 
and the detraz of Degera, and the massacre of whole populations which had merely called forth the Sacamodi ambush as a reprisal, all this of not the slightest importance. Terror, counter-terror, violence, counter-violence, that is what observers bitterly record when they describe the circle of hate which is so tenacious and so evident in Algeria. In all armed struggles, there exists what we might call the point of no return. Almost always, it is marked off by a huge and all-inclusive repression which engulfs all sectors of colonized people. This point was reached in Algeria in 1955 with the 12,000 victims of Philippeville, and in 1956 with Lacoste Instituting of Urban and Rural Militias. Then it became clear to everybody, including the settlers, that quote-unquote, things couldn't go on as before. Yet the colonized people do not chalk up the reckoning. They record the huge gaps made in their ranks as a sort of necessary evil. Since they have decided to reply by violence, they therefore are ready to take all its consequences. They only insist in return that no reckoning should be kept, either for the others. To the saying, quote, all natives are the same, end quote, the colonized person responds, Applies, quote unquote, all settlers are the same. When the native is tortured, when the, his wife is killed or raped, he complains to no one. The oppressor's government can set up commissions of inquiry and the information daily if it wants to. In the eyes of the native, these commissions do not exist. The fact is that soon we shall have had seven years of crimes in Algeria, and there has not yet been a single Frenchman indicated before a French court of justice for the murder of an Algerian. In Indochina, in Madagascar, or in the colonies, the native has always known that he need expect nothing from the other side. The settler's work is to make even dreams of liberty impossible for the native. The native's work is to imagine all possible methods for destroying the settler. On the logical plane, the mechanism of the settler produces a machianism of the native. To the theory of the, quote, absolute evil of the native, end quote, the theory of the absolute evil of the settler replies. The appearance of the settler has meant, in the terms of syncretism, the death of the aboriginal society, cultural lethargy, and the petrification of individuals. For the native life can only spring up again out of the rotting corpse of the settler. This, then, is the correspondence term by term between the two trains of reasoning. But it so happens that for the colonized people this violence, because it constitutes their only work, invests their character with positive and creative qualities. The practice of violence binds them together as a whole, since each individual forms a violent link in the great chain a part of the great organism of violence which has surged upward in reaction to the settlers' violence in the beginning. The groups recognize each other, and the future nationalism is already indivisible. The armed struggle mobilizes the people. That is to say, it throws them in one way and in one direction. The mobilization of the masses, when it arises out of the war of liberation, introduces into each man's consciousness the ideas of a common cause, of a national density, and of a collective history. In the same way, the second phase, that of the building up of the nation, is helped on by the existence of this cement which has been mixed with blood and anger. Thus we come to a fuller appreciation of the 
originality of the words used in these underdeveloped countries. During the colonial period, the people are called upon to fight against oppression. After national liberation, they are called upon to fight against poverty, illiteracy, and underdevelopment. The struggle, they say, goes on. The people realize that life is an unending contest. We have said that the natives' violence unifies the people. By its very structure, colonialism is separatist and regionalist. Colonialism does not simply state the existence of tribes, it also reinforces it and separates them. The colonial system encourages chieftaincies and keeps alive the old marabout confraternities. Violence is in action all-inclusive and national. It follows that it is closely involved in the liquidation of regionalism and of tribalism. Thus, the national parties show no pity at all toward the cades and the customary chiefs. Their destruction is the preliminary to the unification of the people. At the level of individuals, violence is a cleansing force. It frees the native from his inferiority complex and from his despair and inaction. It makes him fearless and restores his self-respect. Even if the armed struggle has been symbolic and the nation is demobilized through a rapid movement of decolonization, the people have the time to see that the liberation has been the business of each and all and that the leader has no special merit. From thence comes that type of aggressive retinence with regard to the machinery of protocol which young governments quickly show. When the people have taken violent part in the national liberation, they will allow no one to set themselves up as quote-unquote liberators. They show themselves to be jealous of the result of their action and take good care not to place their future, their destiny, or the fate of their country in the hands of a living God. Yesterday they were completely irresponsible. Today they mean to understand everything and make all decisions. Illuminated by violence, the consciousness of the people rebels against any pacification. From now on, the demagogues, the opportunists, and the magicians have the difficult task. The action which has thrown them into hand-to-hand -hand struggle confers upon the masses a voracious taste for the concrete. The attempt at mystification becomes, in the long run, practically impossible. So this is the end of this part. Next, we're going to be going into a part called Violence in the International Context.